One of the most transformational companies of the last 20 years has undoubtedly been Uber. In a sense, it's incredible to think in 15 short years, we've come from the launch of the iPhone to now powering a global transport system with the click of a button on that same phone. This week, I caught up with someone that was largely responsible for making that transformation a reality, Manik Gupta, former chief product officer of Uber. Monica and I spent time chatting about Uber, but also extended the conversation of leadership lessons and how he thinks about evaluating startups. We talked about how to think about resource allocation and hyperscale, the trade-offs when developing product, and the learning curve of leadership and being an executive. Monica had over a thousand people report to him in the span of two years. We rounded out the latter part of the discussion, diving into the ecosystem that both he and I have been actively investing in lately and are really excited about, India. Monik, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Ramin, for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, Monik, excited to have you on the show today. We're going to cover a bunch of different topics, uh, your time at Uber, your perspectives on startups in India, healthcare, an area you've been spending more time in recently. But before we dive into all of that, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to Uber. Yeah, so I've been in the tech industry for over 20 years. And uh, I really spent a bunch of time at the intersection of product, engineering, design, data science, and overall general management. Um, I've had the opportunity and the privilege actually to build products that truly scale. Uh, So we took Google Maps to a billion users globally, uh, and I was part of that journey. And we also took Uber to almost uh, just over 100 million monthly actives, uh, which was just a phenomenal um, ride for me to learn so much from uh, how you actually build these products. Um, in terms of connecting the dots, it's always easier to, to connect the dots looking backwards uh, in terms of how I ended up at Uber and I became the chief product officer. Um, I think all the opportunities that I've been a part of over the years, I've dabbled in uh, you know, the couple of things that stand out. One is I've just loved this uh, aspect of real world and digital world colliding. So I've built technology and products around intersection of those two throughout my career. So from starting a company on my own to working in a large uh, multinational company like Hewlett Packard, where I was running e-commerce, going to Google uh, to build out maps for all over the world, and then to Uber, which is the best example we have of our, of our real-time marketplace. Um, so I had the opportunity to work across e-commerce, marketplaces, consumer products, uh, and so on. And the two other points that uh, are very important for me to really lean into my Uber role, uh, one was... Uh, I love working on products that are grounded on deep technical insights. So there needs to be some technology-oriented hook that really made that consumer experience possible. And that was pretty apparent in all the the work that I had done. And the second point was uh, going back to the physical world and digital world, there is always an operational element to these businesses. And I think that needs to be really said uh, multiple times because people don't realize that technology uh, on itself can't just make everything happen in, 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 a, in these businesses and you need a strong operational element. And I had the opportunity to build that over the time, over many years as well. So combination of that kind of got me to Uber and, uh, and got me the success that I had at Uber. So let's, let's double click into the physical and, and digital dichotomy, right? And I want to start the conversation, Monique, with a broader perspective on the future of mobility and transportation. And, and I'll set the context. You know, at a macro level, we're about a year into a global pandemic. Obviously, it's not going to be a permanent state, but there's going to be permanent shifts as a byproduct of this time period. And then at a more macro level, micro level, Uber has been making a lot of moves recently, right? Divesting certain regional operations, transport types, you know, acquiring businesses. 
From an outside in perspective, what should we be concluding about how Uber thinks about this space? And what are your insights on the future of mobility and transportation? Yeah, so uh, as you said, the last year has been one of the craziest years for everybody. Whether you're an individual or you're a business, you have just gone through so much uncertainty and uh, shifting patterns in terms of consumer behavior and demand and, and the entire overall pandemic has just been a pretty bad uh, outcome for, for um, many people. Um, I think from an Uber perspective, uh, I kind of always go back to the core of what makes the company work. And at the heart of it, it is a company that started off in the transportation business. So if you look at transportation itself, by many estimates, it's one of the largest industries in the world. You know, the, there are some estimates that it's more than a trillion dollar market. Now, obviously, you can kind of talk about total addressable market in that sense and say, well, hold on, you know, that includes all kinds of transportation. I get that. But ultimately, if you look at the core capability of the company, it's about connecting buyers and sellers, which is riders and drivers, in a very, very efficient manner, which is really powerful for both the driver from an earning opportunity standpoint and for the rider in terms of getting a much better outcome compared to everything else that's out there. So as of today, during the pandemic, of course, a lot of things have changed at Uber, and I can obviously offer only an outsider's perspective, having left Uber early last year. Um, now Uber has kind of three business lines. They have a ride-sharing business, they have Eats, which is food delivery and groceries and so on, all the stuff that they're building there. And then the third is uh, freight. So the, across these three product lines, um, I feel if you look at the transportation industry, it is true that because everything was shut down during the pandemic, Obviously, nobody was going anywhere. Everyone's sitting at home. And guess what happened? They all started getting food on food, food delivery at home. So that really helped Uber because they had a food delivery business. And from all the uh, public statements the company has made, it is very true that the ride-sharing business is coming back. Wherever the markets are opening up, uh, the ride-sharing is coming back. People are getting around. I mean, we are all social animals, right? We all want to go out, meet some friends, you know, go, go to different places. Uh, and uh, as the recovery happens, the uh, ride sharing is going to come back stronger, in my opinion, as people start looking at many uh, much better ways to go from point A to point B and Uber will be a big part of that story. And so when you were controlling, you know, when you were leading product, right, obviously you need product leader, you know, one of the most influential products, certainly in our generation. And there are multiple components, right? The ride sharing business and the ride sharing product, right? The eats business, the eats product and the freight business and the freight product. Um, I'm curious, given the complexity of the operation, you know, I want you to talk a little bit more, Monica, about the product portfolio and really how that shaped your overall product philosophy, um, you know, to balance competing interests in one case, but then of course, find opportunities for leverage and integration in other cases, right? How did you think about that as you led those, those different, that full product portfolio? No, absolutely. So just to give you some additional context, uh, when I was the chief product officer, I was really running kind of two parts of the organization. One was everything to do with the core ride-sharing business. So as a consumer, you can think about uh, everything that goes into the rider app, the Uber app that you download. If you're a driver on the Uber platform, then you download the driver app and then you're able to get a ride uh, or give a ride rather. And then there was a marketplace that was connecting riders and drivers. So that was sort of the core ride-sharing business. And then I was also running all the underlying platforms that were powering all of these other businesses like Uber Eats and Freight and so on. So, so these would include things like payments and maps and infrastructure and customer service, uh, you know, a lot of those platform services. So as you can imagine, uh, in a fast growing business where all these businesses are really up and to the right and growing really fast, uh, there are all these comp competing priorities and you have to have a 
more like a company-wide framework to determine where you're going to allocate resources. So um, there are two um, frameworks I would like to share, uh, which, which worked for us. Uh, one was uh, we, were, we were very focused on um, doing a very um, cadence-oriented planning cycle where we would essentially get together a lot of our leaders, uh, starting all the way from our CEO and his directs, and also uh, one more layer down to make sure that we have clarity on what the top objectives for the company are for, for that year. And everything kind of started from there because I feel oftentimes one of the mistakes that I, I've seen, and I used to make this mistake earlier as well, and I've learned from it is you can't have a company strategy divorced from product strategy, right? What ends up happening is that if you do these things in silos, the company will say, well, you know, we want to achieve profitability or we want to achieve a certain market penetration and so on. And, and if you ask the product folks to go and do their own strategy, they'll think about consumer experience and all that, which is good. But then these two things are not going to be lined up. So I always feel that there has to be one strategy, that which is a company strategy, which says this is what we are going to do over the next couple of years. This is what our top objectives are. And everything should flow from that. So that's one, one sort of thing that we started off doing. So in terms of the two frameworks, that one thing that worked very well for us was we basically bucketed all of our uh, efforts into four buckets. So the, the, the starting from the bottom and I'll go to the top. At the bottom was what we used to call keeping the lights on, right? So we had to put in some engineering and uh, other support resources and so on to just make sure that our service doesn't go down, right? Like the last thing you want is to build amazing features, but if your product doesn't work, then what's the point, right? And it's amazing to me how many people don't understand this basic that you've got to keep the lights on and you have to have some capacity and it can change from team to team and you kind of make some broad sort of estimates around it, but you reserve some capacity. So engineers, when they have to fix bugs or they have to really go and fix certain infrastructural issues or whatever that can happen. So that was like a non-negotiable layer of, of, of our planning process. The second on top of that were certain must do's from an engineering perspective. And I, you know, I came from a very technical background, so I always love to think from that standpoint. Where um, if 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 the engineering team is coming back and saying, "Well, our infrastructure is crumbling, or we have too many of these issues, and we need to do a rewrite and whatnot," I know rewrites can be a really scary word because, oh my God, is it going to take two years to do this rewrite and whatnot? I get that, but sometimes there's a lot of merit in like really having that principal discussion in terms of what that will enable us to do a couple of years down the road, maybe six months down the road, and what are the in-frame sort of milestones that we will hit. So there will be some, some sort of engineering kind of must-dos, which you should negotiate and, and do. On top of that, you have certain business or compliance must-dos. So I'll give you an example. Uh, at Uber, when the GDPR regime came in uh, from Europe, because we are a global company and we, were, we have a very big, big business in Europe, we had to comply to GDPR. Now, you can't say, hey, that's deprioritized. No, you, you have to do it, right? And you have to put resources on that first before you do something else. So, so that those are kind of the... Like another example is when we were going IPO, we have to do all the SOX compliance and so on. So we had to ensure that we put a lot of that effort in place. And once you have done these three buckets, the remaining allocation of resources is where, you, which is your playground for product innovation, right? And, and if you do it in a structured way like this, what ends up happening is that you immediately know that you're not going to get 100% resources for your product innovation. But you also won't get only 10%, because if you're getting like 10% or 20%, there's something wrong, because then the company is really either overburdened with technical debt or something is really wrong, and you kind of have to have that existential sort of question. So that allowed us, firstly, at a corporate-wide level to really understand how we're going to broad strokes allocate our resources. So that was framework one. And then the framework two was, going back to your original question around how do you allocate uh, across different bets in the company? 
So this is something we used to use at Google and we use at Uber as well, a 70-20-10 framework, where 70% of our resources were focused on uh, areas where which are going to um, show uh, results in the next, let's say, six to 12 months. 20% uh, were maybe from uh, 12 months to 18 months and 10% uh, of resources were maybe two years out. Now, the timelines here are very variable. Uh, it depends on what size of the company you are. If you're a startup, and let's say, I wouldn't advocate first you putting a 70-20-10 if you're a startup because you know, you're basically trying so many different things. But if you're still relatively early, your timelines might be three months, six months, nine months, right? For the 70-20-10, right? But what it does is that it allows you to have a layering of bets which are going to, some of them are gonna pan out, some of them are not gonna pan out, but you have enough shots out there which allow you to keep on innovating and coming up with new ideas and, and moving the business forward. Otherwise, if you just put too much of your resources on what is here and today, then you'll basically get you know, out innovated by a lot of other companies that are moving much faster than you. So those were the two constructs that we use. Now, was this perfect, I mean, No, it wasn't. Like there were so many judgment calls over here in terms of what it means and you know, all that stuff. But at least if you have something to start with, I believe that well, you know, principled people and well-reasoned people can come around the table and say, okay, fine, this is how we're gonna go do it and we're gonna build for the future. I like this concept of layering bets because one of the things you've said previously, and I want you to double click a little bit on this idea is if you can build a product that gets better as the person uses the product, it's a huge unlock, right? So whether we think about kind of framework one and, and the different tiers of buckets, or we think of framework two and 70, 20, 10 in terms of allocation of resources, it seems that that fundamental underlying philosophy is still building a product that can get better as the person is using that product to unlock. Now, most people think of this as personalization and the thinking kind of stops there. Um, I, I have a sense that you think about this a little bit more broadly. So I want you to unpack, you know, how, um, I want you to unpack how you think about that overarching philosophy, which is how as somebody uses a product more and more, right? Do you enforce things like the product getting better? Absolutely. Um, so I, I've believed this uh, for, for a really long time and also not only believe this, I've seen this in action, right? So let, let me unpack this for you a little bit. So when people typically think about a successful product, what they don't realize is products become successful not only because they are just good products and they met the consumer need um, and they had the product market fit, you know, all the concepts that we talk about very often. But one big thing that people miss in every successful product out there is distribution, right? How do you distribute your product? Take any company, take any product in the world, take Google's of the world, Facebook's of the world, uh, all the products that have gone on to become a billion user plus product uh, and so on. I guarantee you that none of them became like that without planned distribution of the product, right? And in my view, um, as you uh, think about the natural advantages that you get from that, what ends up happening is the more people who use your product because you're distributing it, it drives two different effects in my mind. One we already talked about, which is personalization. So uh, obviously let's say you sign up for a product and you give some of your information, then they can give you much more personalized experiences, which is good, right? Uh, and of course the, 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 the perennial question is where do you draw the line? How much information should a user give you and how much uh, personalization you do? And then you can kind of test your way into it. But the second thing that people miss out in that whole uh, paradigm is the more people use your product and the more they interact with it, guess what happens? You actually get network effects in your product. So let me give you an example to illustrate this point. Look at Google Maps. Imagine if Google Maps was used by only 10 million people versus now being used by a billion people. 10 million people would give you road traffic information 
for a very, very small part of the world. But a billion people using it on a monthly basis gives you the best information about road traffic. Why? Because when people use it, guess what's happening? A lot of their location signals in an anonymized way are aggregated and it's just a common good and it's like the wisdom of the crowds, right? So, so to me, there is a, it's a very powerful concept where if you can build the right hooks in your product so that the more people use it, the more they personally benefit because of personalization, going back to the point you were making, but also because somebody else is using it, I also benefit because of that, which is kind of the example with Google Maps, it just unlocks a very significant uh, value proposition. And to me, that actually natively actually drives more distribution for the product. So there are multiple loops in here with regards to how this can be done. So as a product person, when you are innovating and when you're thinking about like, how can I build this long-term user engagement, think of ways in which you can add value or give back value to the user based on the information they are providing you. And then also figure out a way that the more people use it, the better the whole network gets. And I think you have a very winning proposition at that point. And how do you think about balancing that with, with just product bloat, right? I mean, I think one of the things we see over a period of time, and it, it's, you know, it's a function of business models being challenged by new emergence, right? Changing market conditions, et cetera, is these businesses that start out and these products that start out that consumers love over a period of time experience bloat. Right. I think a couple of companies have done this pretty interestingly. I think Google is actually one of them that's done this interestingly, which is keeping products separate. Right. You don't have everything under the horizon of one product, but you have maps, YouTube, so on and so forth. They're all separate products. Right. Uber, as it started out, was very simple. You know, take a person from point A to point B. Obviously, as the as the company has evolved, there's not only additional complexity in, in terms of multimodality, but there's all sorts of other products like uh, Eats, Freight, so on and so forth. Talk a little bit more about how you thought about keeping simplicity and elegance of the product um, while still adding sophistication in to increase the value proposition, but on the other hand, not turning this into an overly bloated product on mobile. Um, that's just too much coming at the user. I'm sure there were a lot of trade-off kind of conversations like that, you know, pretty constantly. So how did, how did you think about that? And maybe, maybe illustrate it with an example, Monik. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, oh, this was a huge debate at Uber. In fact, I would argue that prob- most likely it still is, right? And uh, and I think the the it's actually fascinating to think about the consumer preferences in this question. Um, consumer preferences, let's say, in the Western Hemisphere uh, versus uh, or in the Western part of the world versus uh, in Asia. So, as you know, in Asia, the the most popular set of apps are super apps right? Where you open the app and I mean, even I have tried using them and I'm like, wow, where, where do I, where do I click? Right. And, and how do I sort of understand all this sort of information explosion that's happening on the screen? Uh, but those have gotten a lot of traction, but I have not really seen super apps to that level uh, make a lot of traction in, in, in the West. And so there's something about uh, simplicity and consumer paradigms uh, in, in each of these markets, which is, which is fascinating and maybe a separate discussion altogether. So yes, yeah, so the, it was very highly debated at Uber. I think the you you got to ask yourself what is the underlying reason why this happens in companies, and the reason is when you have a mainline product that is popular, every new product or feature that gets launched wants distribution, right? Going back to the previous point we were making, right? So everybody wants distribution, and the easiest way for them to get distribution is to put their product features or hooks into their product into the mainline product. So now if you're running the mainline product, you have a very difficult job 
And then by the way, this is the same, I know you talked about Google having separate apps, but if you look at Google search, I would argue that Google search is actually the best super app in the world. Why? Because if you go to Google search and you search for something, they actually contextualize the information and give you either video links or they'll give you a map or they'll give you local results, all of that. So it's essentially like a gateway into all of other Google products. And of course, there's a lot of ranking uh, of the organic web and, uh, and advertisements underneath it as well. So to me, um, the, the job of the person who's running the mainline product is like almost like a gatekeeper. And my personal belief is that this person or this team has to always, always be very, very focused on protecting the core experience for their user. Because the last thing you want is you basically make it so complicated for the user that your mainline product starts struggling. And if your mainline product starts struggling, guess what happens to the company? The company is gone, right? You've lost all your users. So you have to be very pure about certain principles around what you can put in there. How do you do it? How do you rank them? Uh, what are some of the UI constructs and so on? And there's no one size fits all over here. Uber, Uber is experimenting and was experimenting when I was also there and different kind of paradigms. And we were just figuring out uh, what works and what doesn't. But there are certain, uh, starting with some principles around simplicity and, and core focus on, not make, on making sure that the core experience for the user is not um, infringed in any particular way for your mainline product. I think that's usually a very good starting point. So when you were at Ubermonic there, I kind of dissect your role and your observations and insights into two buckets, right? There's one bucket of observations, insights, capabilities that's really focused around taking a core product and continuing to grow and evolve it, right? As the business continues to evolve. And then there's a whole other bucket of observations, insights, capabilities, which is, you know, coming in from when you came in to eventually where you exited, leading a thousand person organization, building, you know, all these different capabilities, features, and products. What were some of the non-intuitive things you learned or had to solve for, you know, as the organization scaled, right? Not many people in the world have gone through kind of a compressed period like you have of really seeing the inside bowels and guts of one of the fastest growing companies in the world. What are some of the things outside in, you know, that's just not obvious or intuitive, you know, when people think about the business? Yeah, uh, that's a really, really interesting and important question. So just for some context, when I first joined Uber, if I remember correctly, I was probably managing a team of 15 people in my year one. In year two, I went to 150. And year three, at peak, it was almost 1,400 people. So I had a 10x growth in every year. And, and the, by the time I got to the interim head of product and then the CPO job, uh, that was the biggest job I ever had. Like I hadn't run such a big team before. So it was my first time. And, and I, I remember actively reaching out to all my mentors in the Valley and saying, oh my God, what am I supposed to do now? How do I manage this, right? Um, and also another piece of context, and I'll, I'll explain to you why I'm saying this. And um, my role was also not just one function. Uh, it was not just, let's say, product management. It was six different functions from data science, design, user research, program management, product marketing at some point as well. Um, so... There were a lot of uh, lot of things that that I learned along the way, which were which were very different from what I expected. So let me share a couple of them with you. So the first one is, as you get to a much bigger team and as I'm more like an executive in a company, one thing that immediately happens is that information that comes to you is filtered, right? It, it is it is kind of strange in a way. Like I'm the same person, right? I was doing one thing one day and I, I you know I got the job the next day. And suddenly there is a sort of shift that happens where, where access to the right information becomes harder for me uh, on day two versus day one, right? 
So, so um, I think by the time it reaches you, either it has been watered down quite a bit in many cases, or you have, it, it has gone through multiple handoffs because one person came up with a slide deck and some person reviewed it and then their manager reviewed it and blah, blah, blah. And by the time I got it, I'm like, wait, hold on. Like, I don't even understand like what's really happening here. How did it go from what I thought instinctively, instinctively that was right versus where we are now? So information filtering is a thing. Uh, at least that's what I observe. And I think the right thing, the right way I at least went about it, in my opinion, was the, to have enough hook, enough hooks and, and kind of systematic way to kind of dig in, right? As opposed to just like being at the surface and just like listening to what is being told to you. Uh, and this does not mean that you have to check other people's homework. And by the way, most cases, I would say vast majority, majority of the cases, it was not about people suddenly hiding information. It's about filtering and the loss of context, which you as a leader have to dig in a lot more, and that's your job. So that was one big learning for me that I had to kind of go through, and it's not very obvious to people. People expect organizations to scale, decision-making scale, with the number of people. It doesn't. It actually breaks down, and you kind of have to go towards it. The second insight I'd give you is, uh, because I have all these multiple functions reporting to me, it was hard for me initially to build cohesion. Right? What is the identity of the team? See, if you're running a product management team, the identity of the team is everyone's a PM. Right? Or if you're running a design team, everyone's a designer. Now you have this sort of mixed six, seven functions. What is that team? Right? Is that team a product team? Is that team a technology kind of delivery team? You know, what, what is it? So, so I had to work with my leaders to figure out a way to create some cohesion in terms of a shared identity. Right? Why does this organization exist the way it does? It exists because there are certain things that this organization coming together under one leader can unlock. And that part needs to be a narrative that is really important for everyone to believe in it. Otherwise, there's this sort of weird loss of identity and, and people feel that why am I you know, kind of part of this organization when I don't really understand and I don't ever work with my peers. You know, it's just like a weird organizational construct. And by the way, that can happen sometimes because you do tend to put certain, sometimes certain organizations or certain uh, teams under, under a leader which may not actually work together because of some other you know, optimization that the company needs to do. But then let's be open about it, right? So that's the second thing kind of, uh, I realized that you have to build that common narrative. And then the third one was, I was just shocked at how much time uh, of my day-to-day -day was spent on just managing people, right? People issues, somebody's leaving, somebody's not performing, you know, performance evaluation season is coming up. I got to do the promo sessions, you know, all that stuff. I was like, oh my God, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work for an organization leader. And I, I to be very candid, I underestimated that. Uh, I thought that probably that would be like maybe 10, 15, 20%, and I can still be this guy who builds product and all that. And I realized very quickly that a vast majority of my time, especially in a company like Uber, which was going through this hyperscale mode, where a lot more people are coming in and there's churn and the business is moving and there are all these sort of external and internal issues that you have to deal with. It was a lot of people-oriented work. So those are the three insights that I would offer you uh, were, were very big kind of shifts in my thinking as I grew up as a leader in the, in the, in the organization. Yeah, I like all three of those. And I want, I want to briefly double click actually into, into probably each one. On, on the first point, right, having these kind of methods or mechanisms to dig in very quickly. G give us some examples of, of what are some of those kinds of frameworks or hooks that did allow you to dig in quickly. And I'll, I'll give perspective, you know. I run an organization with about a hundred people, much less in size and sure. scale, but that same filtering concept happens every day, right? And so you have to develop your own, I think, mix of mechanics that are based on your business, based on your team construct, and then based on your personality and style 
to put those together to actually elicit the right type of information. So what were what were some examples, kind of tactical examples of hooks or so, you know, that sure. you used to, to break through these filtrations? So so they were they were both um, I, I did a, I, I'll offer you a couple of examples. Uh, one was reactive, the other was proactive. So the reactive one was um, at Uber, we had a lot of teams that used to publish uh, like a weekly newsletter for their team. And uh, they used to talk about, uh, you know, what are some of the problems? What are some of the opportunities that they're working on? And what is some of the progress? You know, things like that. And I had a filter set up in Gmail, right? Where I used to filter a lot of those newsletters uh, as, by the way, firstly, I used to subscribe to all of them uh, or, a, or not all of them, a large chunk of them, especially for the teams that I was particularly interested in. And I used to have a Gmail filter that used to put them in. And every weekend, I just used to read all of them, right? So that was a really good way for me to get an understanding of what's happening. In many cases, I wouldn't actually understand the terms there anymore, which is, you know, like, like sometimes teams are working on a project and whatever. But I kind of, that's the judgment part, right? You kind of get a gist of like what's really going on, especially on the problem side, resourcing. Uh, then I would look at it and say, wait, this team actually did something which is which I can connect a dot with something else. Wow, that's amazing. Like these two teams should talk, right? So so that was, that was one reactive thing that I did. The proactive thing that I did is I established a skip level one-on-ones. Um, so this is again, a very common practice, but you have to kind of put in the effort, right? So skip level one-on-one, not with my directs, but one level below them. And even in some cases, two or three levels below them, just to sort of get to know folks, just to understand what's working well, what's not working well, how can I help? Uh, am I am I focused on the right things? I used to ask this question, by the way, to a lot of these folks is, do you think I'm focused on the right things? And they'll tell me often, like, you know, some people do, will always say, hey, yeah, yeah, it's perfect. But some people would actually say, tell me to my face, like, no, 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 you're actually, this is not the area we should be focusing on. We would need your help over here. So that was one way for me to, to sort of get that information. And the interesting thing, Romain, about this was, it was not just the the actual information I got in these discussions. It was a signaling effect of this to the broader organization that I'm doing this. So that a combination of those two really helped me understand uh, a little bit more deeply in terms of what's happening. How did you scale your capabilities um, going from, in, in two respects, one going from 15 to 150 to 1400, right, in two years? And the second is taking responsibility of an organization that had six functions, right? So your background, you know, you have a technical background, but it's very much so a product background, right? Of course, as you're working in these organizations, you have familiarity with design, you know, project management, so on and so forth. But that's very different than leading teams of hundreds of designers, hundreds of project managers, so on and so forth. How did you scale your personal capabilities? And what did you find was most important during that rapid growth period in the company's life cycle? And, and I want to set some context for folks that are listening. It's, it's very popular in these types of dynamics. If you're not scaling with the company, you basically get layered, right? And, and the company is a runaway train. And there's not that many businesses like Uber, right, that, that are just absolute runaway trains. Um, and so it's very important, clearly, for you to have ascended in that role. You had to have figured out these mechanics of staying at least, if not ahead, on the same slope of the business. Yeah. Uh, so I had the opportunity to run uh, three out of those six functions before I took on the CPO role. So I was running product management, in fact, four functions. So product management, data science, data analytics, and program management. Those four functions in a smaller smaller area, but I had the I had already been running that for about a couple of years. So that that at least got, got me familiarity with that space in terms of 
you know who the players are what are, how do you evaluate those people how do you put them through a through a performance cycle uh how how do how do the data scientists work with the product management folks work with the engineers so i've kind of seen that for a couple of years already within the company and it's also company specific experience as opposed to learning that from somewhere else so that part was uh that the, the challenge over there was just uh, the next level in terms of the number of people within those functions versus the functional knowledge itself I think the design and research and, and some of the other functions was a little bit new to me uh, in terms of managing them directly. I was lucky because we had pretty strong leaders already in those uh, areas. And uh, I had been part of that same group. Uh, in fact, I was peers with many of them. So it was much easier for, I already had that relationship. So, so when I got the job, because I was promoted from within um, and they started reporting to me, I already had seen some of the patterns and I just spent a lot more time with them to understand and support them uh, as opposed to like digging in uh, that much directly initially because you know I also had to develop my perspective. So, so the scaling for me, some of it happened organically because I was kind of going through that. Uh, and some of it was just you know, figuring that out uh, together with strong leaders. I think where, where, what, what, I would, what I would think about here is I feel like I had built enough trust within the organization broadly, not only at a leadership level, but across the board that people were okay to give me a chance, right? Because, you know, when you go through a transition like that, you have to, you have to make sure that, uh, that uh, people are believing in you. So, so people give me a chance. And then from, from that point onwards, I was able to then work with a lot of my team members and, and make that work. Um, and I also developed a, a pretty good uh, portfolio of my mentors, right? Like a lot of mentors whom I just reached out and I said, look, you know, this is what I'm going through. How should I think about it? What has worked for you and what, has worked, what hasn't worked for you? And then I kind of tried to look at some of those patterns and, and make that work from there. So you left Uber early last year. You've been spending a bunch more time investing in startups. Um, give us a sense of the areas and, and geographies you're most interested in and, and why. Yeah, so I left Uber in January of 2020. And uh, originally the intention was to take a break for a couple of quarters and, uh, and then decide what I want to do next. And then, uh, you know, the whole world changed with COVID. So I really took the opportunity to develop new skills and new networks and uh, work on a bunch of different projects. So um, I ended up uh, doing a lot of investing as an angel um, in uh, different sectors, which I'll talk about in a second. Also started advising a few companies uh, that I was very, very passionate to learn from and contribute my expertise towards. So that's what I did. In terms of some of the sectors that I'm bullish on, um, the, the, two, the two areas in particular that I want to highlight, even though I haven't made that many investments just there yet uh, compared to some of the other areas, but uh, I'm spending a lot of time on them are healthcare, particularly digital health. And then the second is uh, increasingly looking at India uh, and startups in India uh, and what they're doing to see if I can be a part of their journey. So those are the two areas that I'm, my mindset is, is, is or mind space is more occupied uh, in, in those areas right now. Yeah, let's let's dig into both of those, both the, the geo and, and the sector. I, I wrote something actually about a month ago um, of why I'm also just incredibly bullish on India. I've been making more and more investments there. And I think there's a convergence of like five different elements all going on at the same time in that market, right? Um, and I've increasingly just been incredibly impressed with founders in that ecosystem and just the language and the parlance that folks are coming to the table with. Uh, and that's been progressing kind of every year, you know, over the last four or five years since I've been looking at the space. You know, you, of course, you grew up in India, right? Let's let's start by talking a bit more about the country and the ecosystem and how you've uh, have you've experienced its evolution, right? And then, 
you know, specifically what you're most excited about in India right now? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, I remember um, back in the late 90s when I graduated, and I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but when I graduated, the that was kind of the first um, wave, if you will, the first big wave of Indian IT companies. And guess what was the number one project they were working on? Y2K, right? <laughs> so this was, uh, for folks who don't remember, it was about... Uh, the date field or the year field in the date was a two-digit uh, field versus a four-digit field. And, uh, you know, you went from 99 to 00, and that would have really wrecked havoc on a bunch of systems who suddenly didn't understand what date it actually was. So there was a lot of companies that came into existence during that time, or they got a lot of sales during that time to just become these people who go in and fix these systems and put that from a two-digit to a four-digit code, right? So that was like the first way where, where everyone was like, wow, okay, you know, we can actually make this work. We can outsource to India and so on and so forth as services companies. Um, and then I saw over time the transition where, where a lot of the multinational companies, especially the United, uh, uh, Silicon Valley companies and U.S. companies started establishing uh, R&D centers in India, right? So I was part of that too. I was part, when I was at Google, I joined Google in India in 2008. And in, I think 2006 or 2007, Google had established their R&D center in Bangalore in India. And uh, that was kind of the second wave where suddenly a lot of people in India got an opportunity to work in these companies sitting in India, but really learning global product practices, right? Product and engineering practices. And I think that was a great catalyst for, for talent development, uh, because otherwise, most of the times, you know, you would see people who want to uh, uh, work in an American company, they would come out to the United States and they'll join companies here and so on. But now you had an opportunity to just work in India and be closer to family or whatever your personal situation is and still have a similar experience. Um, and then the next wave I saw around the same time was when you had companies like Flipkart, which is the largest uh, e-commerce player in India, a homegrown company. Um, and uh, Flipkart had a successful outcome and uh, it breeded a lot of entrepreneurs, right? People came out, they were wealthy, they had got like a good success. And either they started new companies or they funded new companies. So that was a catalyst, again, of starting the ecosystem. So if we fast forward to today, echoing what you said, by the way, your tweet storm was amazing. I, I, I read it as well. I think those five friends, I completely agree with you on, on all those points that you made in your tweet storm. Um, I do feel that we are at a very interesting point where a lot of the fundamental aspects around uh, building from India and building a global company from India from a talent perspective, from, a, from an infrastructure standpoint, the availability, the cultural attitude towards starting companies, all that has changed and, and it's a really dynamic situation and I'm, I'm really excited about it. And how, how about healthcare? Um, I think there's an interesting parallel from your time at Uber that's helpful to draw to healthcare, which is I think about Uber in the early days, especially as an example of permissionless innovation, right? Meaning it was brute force innovation that was, let's innovate first, you know, ask questions later, right? And I think we can have a separate discussion of kind of pros and cons of that, but that's that's kind of what the early parameters of the company were. But at scale, right, especially over the last couple of years, Uber's really had to find a way to cooperate with and work within the system, right? And I think it's kind of the same with healthcare. I mean, to be successful, you have to find a way to cooperate within the existing system. There's bounds of permissionless innovation in different types of pockets that, that make sense. Um, but ultimately you have to find a way to cooperate within the existing system. So how are you thinking about healthcare and, and what specifically are you most excited about that you're looking at right now? Yeah, no, so, so I think you captured it well. Um, 
I see a lot of similarities between um, the the way Uber built its business uh, to how healthcare actually gets done. So let me kind of start from a market perspective. My assessment is that healthcare is also a very hyper-local market, right? It is not, you, you, you know, you typically wouldn't go to the extent that you're seeing a doctor in person. I mean, if you're seeing it on video, it doesn't matter. But if you're seeing a doctor in person, you're not going to go 50 miles to see a doctor unless it's a super specialist and you really have to go there. So it's a really hyper-local market. Uh, and and a lot of people don't understand this about Uber also, by the way, which is uh, Uber was always a very hyper-local market. San Francisco is different from New York, is different from London, is different from Paris, right? So every market has its own unique characteristics. So I think healthcare is a very localized delivery and that's one aspect. And, and that also means it's fragmented, right? The moment it's hyper-local, it's fragmented. You don't have, even though there's a lot of consolidation among providers right now, you know, you have the, you have the um, in, in the Bay Area, you have the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Sutter Health, you have the Stanford Clinics and so on. And everywhere else, there are all these consolidation where providers are becoming larger, but by and large, it's still a pretty fragmented hyperlocal market. So that's one. Uh, my personal interest and kind of hook into this is purely from a consumer lens. You know, I have worked on consumer businesses over the years. And the question that I've been asking myself is, it's really interesting that in, at least in the United States, the consumer in most cases is not the payer, right? Because the payer is the insurance company. So, so you have this really interesting incentive dynamic, right? Where the consumer is like, you know what? I'm already paying for insurance or my employer is paying for insurance. I'm just gonna show up and I don't really care, right? Because somebody else is gonna foot the bill. At the same time, when I think about from a consumer standpoint, I kind of break it down into like four different buckets. I look at it in terms of, reactive care and which is what we are seeing with telemedicine and everything i have a problem and i want to see someone right away and how do you sort of improve that 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 paradigm and uh, covid has actually been a phenomenal catalyst towards towards uh, pulling forward some of that behavior the second is proactive like i want to just get better i want to take care of myself and especially for people who have uh, uh you know some chronic conditions like you're a diabetic person and so on you just have this continuous care management paradigm and how can technology kind of help towards that the third one I'm particularly uh, bullish on, and, and, and I'm hoping that we can solve this problem, is community health. So like, you know, to give you another quick uh, analogy, if you look at, uh, there's, a, there's a product called Flu Trends that Google has, right? And you can go in there and you can search for things and it will tell you, okay, what's the prevalence of flu and so on. When COVID happened, for the life of me, I could never figure out, like in the community that I live in, what's the prevalence of COVID? Like, that doesn't exist. Why is that? Right, I can pretty much get a lot of local, hyper-local information about all kinds of stuff in my community. But around healthcare, I just cannot. It's like the, the, the information doesn't exist. Why, right? Is there a, the, you know, what, why are the incentives not lined up? Why are consumers not contributing this information? So I've been thinking a lot about that. And the fourth and the very important one is financial aspects. How do you really get overall cost of care reduced and really have... Uh, the healthcare outcomes being determined in a way that that are uh, in line with the amount of money that's going into the system. So this whole thing from, uh, you know, uh, a fee for service versus value-based care. So I, I've been kind of looking at uh, a lot of those those factors in healthcare um, and and just kind of going and asking sort of questions from first principles in terms of why is it like that? What can we do about it? Uh, and that has been a phenomenal journey for me for the last six months or so, where I've talked to a bunch of people and I've learned a ton. I don't have the answers yet, to be honest. Like it's really complicated, but at least I'm learning a lot and I'm sharpening my my thesis on a bunch of these points. I I want to I want to parlay the insights that you've learned into the the final question as we round out the conversation. It's one I ask kind of every guest on our show, relevant to the space they operate in. But we're going to do something a little bit different, Monic, with you because we covered three topics today. 
we're actually going to ask this. I'm going to ask this question and we're going to go kind of topic by topic. And the, and the question is the, the kind of iconic and famous question of what's one thing you believe in that others wouldn't agree with you on? Let's start with mobility and, and Uber first. And then I want to cover India as well as healthcare. Yeah, on mobility and Uber, um, I firmly believe that it is still very, very early innings for Uber. I think the consumer behavior has changed for for a much better experience. We are not going back. We are not going back the way that things used to be, right? We just want, you know, the product market fit for Uber is insane. It is so strong and the company will keep executing, keep putting great products out there. And I think it's really early. A lot of people think, well, you know, it's already gotten to this point and, you know, what the stock is doing and all that. Yeah, sure. All that is great. But uh, I think it's still very early innings and the company is going to continue to fundamentally change the way we operate in the transportation space. How do you think about India? Uh, so India, uh, my belief based on um, talking to a few entrepreneurs recently and, and also investing uh, similar to you is I, my belief is that the Indian, entre- Indian entrepreneurs will, be- will continue to build in India, right? and sell their services globally, and they will end up competing with entrepreneurs in the US for the same customers. Uh, The playbook to build is global. Uh, It's amazing how many people are talking about uh, building in public. You know, that's the thing. You go to Twitter, you go to any of the, you go to Clubhouse and all these other forums. Uh, Everyone's talking about how they build and so on. And guess who's listening to all of that? Who's reading all of that? It's all the Indian entrepreneurs are on it. The, the terminology that I hear from them, the uh, presentations that I see from them, they are using the same metrics, the same frameworks that I use, uh, that I see from entrepreneurs out here. So I think they are going to give some serious run for the money to entrepreneurs here because they're hungry and they're willing to go. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that. Uh, I couldn't agree with that more. How about, uh, how about healthcare? Yeah, healthcare, kind of echoing some of the things we were talking about earlier, which is uh, because it's kind of a weird sort of incentive structure where consumers don't really pay for it directly, I, I think I'm a little bit contrarian in that in the sense that I think consumers over time will increasingly demand a lot more from the healthcare experiences, even though the current norm is that they don't really, you know, the expectation is they don't really care as much because they don't pay directly. I think that is changing because the moment you give someone a better experience, regardless of whether they are putting money out of the pocket or not, they want that. And they crave that. And I think everyone has to figure out how to really up their game and deliver those experiences to consumers because ultimately that's who we, we are here for in the healthcare industry. I mean, if you don't serve consumers, what are you really doing? So I think they'll start demanding a lot more on that. And I think we'll see a lot more investment in that area. Well, Monik, this was this is a ton of fun. You know, I know you're a super busy guy, so I really appreciate the time. And it was just great to get your insights on on mobility, Uber, and then some of the you know bright spots that you're looking at in India and healthcare as well. So Thanks again. You know, really enjoyed having you on the show today. I mean, thank you so much for asking great questions and uh, thanks for having me on your show.